Just a heads up, Lane and I talk about suicide in our conversation. If this brings anything up for you and you want to talk to someone about it, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Where to start with Lane Beachley? Surfing legend, sporting icon, complete game changer. She's the seven-time world surfing champion, the only person to win six world titles consecutively, and she's inspired generations of frothing groms across the globe. Out of the surf, her impact has been just as great. There's the national sporting board she sat on and chaired, surfing competitions she's grown and sponsored, her aim for the Stars Foundation, and now Awake Academy, an online empowerment and personal growth course. But beneath these endless waves of glory, Lane struggled with crippling challenges, depression and self-doubt, the death of three mothers, her biological, adopted and stepmother, body image and plastic surgery, and what she calls the mistakes she made on tour when her fierce competitive nature just went too far. Yet it's the recognition of these which make her fiercer, stronger and more admirable than ever before. It's one incredible story, and for Lane, it all starts on the northern beaches of Sydney. Adopted into a beach-loving family, last name Beachley, become a world champion surfer. There is no more fortunate <laughs> twist of fate. And for any of you journalists that ever ask me, Beachley, did you change your name or is that just coincidence? You owe me a dollar. So what about surfing? How did you, do you remember your first wave? How did you step into the surf the first time? I don't remember my first wave, and I I wonder how many people actually do. I remember only because of photos. I remember mm-hmm. standing on my foamy on the harbour side of the beach, mm-hmm. of Manly Beach. So that's where my dad introduced me to surfing, actually before I was four. Uh, but I started really surfing, you know, paddling and catching waves by the time I was four years of age. Mm-hmm. And um, just feeling that, that freedom, that mm-hmm. sense of connectedness and centeredness and freedom. I felt so alive. Mm. Yeah. So I think that obviously that's where the addiction came from yeah. is that that desire to constantly feel free. Do you remember your first surfboard? What it looked yeah, like? Yeah, it was a foamy. Yeah. Yeah. Foamy. It was one of those it was one of those white foamies with the blue cloth cover that just rashed the oh. crap out of your chest and stomach. And <laughs> when the um, sun hit it. red single fin. And I believe it was one of those KFC boards that you yeah. you know, if you bought something from there you ended up with a with a <laughs> <laughs> styrofoam surfboard. <laughs> How many kids who are listening have grown up on KFC styrofoams? I'm sure there's plenty. So it was immediate love for you. Mm. Not many girls surfing when you were um, going. So was there, why did your dad put you into surfing if well, that's the case? And did you ever know, did you notice straight up there's not, this isn't something that a girls are doing at the moment? I was aware of my uh, environment, my mm. external environment, but I never really allowed it to dictate the terms of my life. Mm. And that stands true today. My dad was part of, and still is part of the life-saving movement. He was just um, awarded life membership into the Manly Surf Lifesaving cool. Club after God knows what, 60 odd years of being a member. Did you of- ever wear the red and yellow cap? No. No. No, I saw lifeguards as being the antithesis of where I wanted to be. They were the enemy. <laughs> they put up flags where I want to surf. <laughs> they moved the, the yellow or black and white sign where surfboards are not allowed to pass. 
further down the beach, yep. like yep. just past where the best waves are. Yep. Then they threaten to take my board off me. They threaten to impound my board. They threaten to find me. <laughs> and then I'm left saving people that they the can't that's get doing to. doing your job. I'm doing your job. And then you come out and you're red and yellow lifeguard boards <laughs> and run me over. Like you're supposed to save my life, not threaten my life. So... No, I wanted nothing to do with the life-saving movement. I feel like these feelings are something that you still Ooh, experience today. There's a bit of power behind that. Statement. Yeah. yeah and just angst. Uh, no, I'm very <laughs> grateful for the life-saving movement because it has given my dad a place of belonging. It's given him a community. It's saved his life, I reckon. It's mm. given him purpose. He still gets up at 4.30, 5 o'clock every morning to open up the surf club. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's given him a place where he truly belongs. And so my brother joined the nippers. Mm-hmm. I had very little interest. But you didn't even join nippers. No. Even though your dad and your brother were into Don't it. Don't put me on the beach <sighs> on the weekend to chase down pieces of rubber hose. Like that does not appeal to me. You can go in the water oh, and do board paddling. Eventually. <laughs> but first I'm going to burn up and get up, dehydrated but... on the sand, chasing down pieces of hose, and now are you going to tell me when I can go in the water? Screw that. I'm going to be surfing all day. <laughs> Said like a true surfer. <laughs> <laughs> what about other sports growing up? What other sports did you do? Tennis. I love tennis. Really? I started playing when I was six, but I was too short to hold a racket or look over the net. <laughs> so I was a late bloomer into tennis, but I loved it. And I still love it today. And then as I joined school, I remember in primary school I played handball and cricket and then into high school I played hockey, cricket, soccer, water polo, volleyball, basketball. Anything left? In sports that I didn't enjoy, I didn't bother playing, and sports Mm. that I wasn't good at, I didn't pursue either. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, every moment, every waking moment of every day, if I wasn't, you know, doing my schoolwork or or, um, fulfilling whatever duties I was Mm presented with I was playing sport and playing games. I'm just playing. Mm. You mentioned before right at the top that you were adopted. Mm -hmm. When did you find out? When I was eight. Mm -hmm. My dad decided that it was time to tell me because kids around the street were asking me because I looked so different. Mm. I was three foot tall and now I'm five foot tall, but I was three foot tall and I had dark olive skin and bright blue eyes and bright blonde hair. Mm. My dad and my brother are both in the six foot range and they're pasty white and brown eyed and mm. brown haired and they're like, where do you come from? Right, right. <laughs> and I'd look, at, I'd look at my family and go, yeah, good question. Where do I come from? Because my mother, who I lost as a four-year-old, was half Japanese and I just didn't look anything like the rest of my family unit. Mm. And so... I never questioned it because I felt like I belonged there anyway. Yeah, and my, yeah. No one ever treated me any different. Mm-hmm. But when the kids started questioning it, Dad thought the worst person he could hear it from is somebody other than him. Mm. So that's when he sat me down. By the time you're eight, it's way too late to tell someone that you've been lying to them or yeah, that right. you haven't just told them the truth. Yeah. Um, because in the first five years of our life, five, six years of our life, our brain waves are in a state where we're just absorbing information mm. and we're determining how we fit into that and... We're in this this uh, narcissistic phase where everything's mm. happening to us. And then by the time we hit seven or just after six, actually, our brains switch and we then become judgmental, critical, analytical. Mm. And so if I was informed in those earlier years, I would have been able to create more understanding mm. around it in my own time. But because now my brain has evolved to a place where I can judge and criticise and analyse, mm. the first thing that overtakes those Uh, faculties is fear. Mm. So that's what overwhelmed me in that moment. I Mm. felt so fearful. I felt so abandoned, so rejected, so undeserving of love that I almost rejected myself Mm. from the family unit at that point in time. I mean, my dad's still my rock and and I know he loves me and adores me as if I was his own and Mm. I feel like, 
You know, mm. he, he is my only parent in my life. Mm. However, at the time, it was, an, it was a choice between choosing to recognise where I'm at or choosing to focus on a story that serves and validates my fear. Mm. And I focused on the story mm. and not recognised the reality. Mm. And it was that story that drove me to then wanting to become a world champion, which then drove me to become a six times consecutive world champion, mm. which drove me to flog myself to death, mm. to to win and and dominate in a state of fear, to reject people, to destroy really good relationships. Mm. Just, I mean, it mm. was just all fear-based. And it all got, stems back from... Stems back to that catalyst moment, sitting on that couch, being told lovingly and nurturingly that I've been adopted. Yeah. And I just went, oh, I've been abandoned. I've been rejected. I'm undeserving of love. I'm worthless. I have an unconscious from this moment on, most moment in time, mm. a very unconscious fear of rejection. And that seems to be a real common denominator throughout adoptees. Your adopted mum, mm. Valerie, mm. passed away earlier. Mm. Can I ask how she passed away? She had a brain hemorrhage during cosmetic surgery. So she went into, she was a very petite, vain woman. She had a very serious, unexpected cesarean C-section when she gave birth to Jason, my brother, mm. and they botched up the sewing. And so several years later, she went back into hospital. To, and that was why she couldn't have another yeah, child. Yeah. So that's why I was adopted. And then she went back into hospital to correct all the scar tissue. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, undetected high blood pressure and, and uh, died on the operating table with wow. a brain hemorrhage. So, wow. yeah, Dad had to race to the hospital, unfortunately, just got to see it, got to see the flat line. Yeah. And then that was it. Oh, awful. Yeah, awful. Do you, you remember those emotions that you felt at that time or oh, is that something you've yeah. too young? No, I remember Dad coming home and I, and, and I feel, I remember putting my eyes in my, my head in my pillow and bawling my eyes out going, God, that sucks. Like, but I mm. don't. I yeah, I'm not one to to uh, harbor on the sadness and the distress mm. that was associated. I mean, I do recall feeling extremely sad, extremely distressed. I know I for several years, or probably a couple of years after that, I had nightmares. Um, I'd crawl into my brother's bed just to be held, mm-hmm. um, but I don't remember much. I like I don't have any really deep or profound memories of my mother. Mm. It's almost like when she was gone, I blocked her out mm. and just didn't want to go back there. I just remember I mean, I've still got a blanket that she knitted and that I used to sleep under, had naps under mm. with her. And I remember drinking the dregs of her coffee cup as a kid, which is probably why I don't drink coffee. But um, they're, 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 you know, my memories of mum are very limited mm. uh, and maybe it, it was my self-protection, my, you know, my survival mechanism to just block it out and just keep, continue on. Because you talked about before when you made that decision, when you found out that you're adopted, mm. that you made a decision that would validated, validated your fear. Mm-hmm. But what, what was that decision? That I have to be a world champion because no one loves me. <laughs> Even though my dad's telling me how much he yeah. loves me, I'm like, okay, I'm undeserving of love. I know if I become a world champion, everyone will love me. Mm. And that's what drove me. Did you know it was surfing then? No. You just want to be a world champion. Yeah, it was an auspicious goal to set myself yeah. as an eight-year-old. I'm going to be the best <laughs> in the world. And everyone's like, yeah, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> you go, girl. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to be the best at? Yeah. Everything. Soccer, tennis, cricket, golf. No, I'm never going to be good at golf. I'm still not very good at golf. But I loved playing sport. I loved being in the ocean. Mm. And even though, as you mentioned earlier, you know, when I grew up surfing, there weren't any 
other women in mm. the water. Maybe occasionally there was one or two. So a lot of people say you can't be what you can't see. And I I say, well, that's just a, I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if that's the case. Mm. So I chose to see something that mm. a lot of people couldn't see. Mm. And I chose to see a lot of, within myself that maybe other people weren't able to see. But by creating that vision, I was then able to share it with other people mm. who then were able to then reinforce the vision at times when I lost sight of it. Mm. So it's really important that you surround yourself with those people. Mm. And so I talk about my three kind of steps for achieving success in life. And number one starts with that vision. Mm. Who is it? Who are you? Who do you want to be? How Mm. do you want to feel each day? What difference do you want to make? How are you going to contribute to the world? That's your vision. Mm. And then you have to have the dream team around you that reinforces and supports that vision. Mm -hmm. And like I said, believe in you more than you believe in yourself at times when you lose sight of your vision and you lose sight of your yourself and Mm. you, you know, you start to feel like you're not enough, which I have a massive imposter syndrome problem Mm. (laughs) issue where I just don't feel like I'm good enough, smart enough, talented enough. And then it's the actions that you take every day that hold you accountable for achieving your vision. Mm. I love that you're so honest about um, imposter syndrome and self-doubt. And we've sat on a few panels together and um, from women from all different walks of life. Mm. And a couple of them, the last panel we sat out at a women's breakfast, um, a couple of ladies came back to me and they just felt so validated. They were like, I have imposter syndrome. I have so much self-doubt. But to hear Lane Beachley also has that problem, I'm like, oh, it's okay. Like I can, it's okay that I'm feeling this way. Mm. But um, yeah, you gave them kind of, you gave that validation (laughs) in a way that that what they're feeling is okay. And it's, it's, uh, not normal, but they can fight through it. They're not the only ones that, that feel that way. And I feel, you know, it, it's funny when you say that. It makes me think about how often I suffer in silence in certain mm. ways because there's so much shame from my generation. There's so much shame mm. wrapped up in being wrong <laughs> or hurting yourself yeah. or letting someone down. All that shame prevents me from actually coming forward and sharing a lot of the mm. stuff that I go through. But then I recognise that there's certain things that I go through that I know that if I do share this, then women like that will know that they're not alone. And the last thing I need to feel is isolated and alone, Mm. especially when I'm in a state of discomfort and unhappiness and sadness and depression and despair. Mm. All of those things make you feel isolated in in themselves. Mm. So to then ostracise yourself which magnifies the pain and suffering. Mm, yeah. It's the worst thing you can do. So I have learned and I'm and I feel I feel validated and reassured mm. when women come up and say, "Well, now that I know that you are dealing with then it, it's then okay. it, it makes me feel okay yeah. that I'm dealing with it too." It's like when you know, we're not islands. You touched on it, but when mm. you started surfing, there weren't many women in the lineup and it's a fierce and ferocious <laughs> lineup in the northern beaches um, back is. in your day. Yeah. I can understand. Um, yeah. still is. Even more so, to become the best at surfing, how did you even have the courage to get into that lineup and get on those waves um, with some of the pushback that you would have felt in the surf? Very interesting question. Once again, it's difficult to reflect back on the age that I was at four years of age and seeing the surf or the seeing that ocean environment as being hostile and threatening and intimidating. Mm. I didn't see it that way. Mm. And I feel that we approach situations based on how we frame them. And if I framed it as, oh, that's a place where I don't belong, mm. then maybe I would have sat back and gone, I'll wait for someone to give me permission to paddle out there. Mm. But I didn't see it that way. No. I just saw it as an environment that I loved 
that I craved being in and that I felt that sense of freedom and excitement and I just was attracted to it. So I'm just going to keep following mm. that and just trust that, that intuition, trust those feelings and just immersing myself in it. It's such a force, a powerful mm. force that you cannot master, you cannot predict, you mm-hmm. cannot control. So for self-confessed control freaks out there, surfing is the best sport for you to learn (laughs) because it teaches you to surrender, let go, go with the flow, deal with fear, uh, adapt, adapt to change, Mm. um, process your own emotions. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of benefits to just being in the ocean. Mm -hmm. But when the guys paddle out there, oh, my goodness. What was it like? Well, it depends. We, see, we always hear threatening, intimidating. It was yeah, so hostile, there was guys, but why? There was guys down at Manly who were very supportive and encouraging. Mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like I've always been attracted to older men because growing up as a kid, kids my age were very insulting, very harsh, very critical, whereas guys that were a little bit older were very supportive and encouraging. Like they've grown through that phase. Mm. And I just, so I've always been attracted to hanging out with people a lot mm-hmm. older than me. <laughs> okay. And when I was hanging with guys my age, it took me some time to find my tribe. People who respected me, uh, people who challenged me but were honest with me, that didn't insult me just for the sake of dragging me down, but they mm. were doing it just to, you know, make sure that I, I stayed grounded. Mm. I stayed, I stayed grounded. But also um, they were just fun. And I loved the... What's the word I'm looking for? I love the engagement that I had with my tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was times when they beat me up, but then there was times I beat them up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I recognised that when they were beating you up, it was a sign of love and affection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but when there was when I graduated up the northern end of Manly Beach, there was a lot more hostility and threats that weren't just taunts out of love and affection, mm-hmm. but they were serious taunts of intimidation and threat. So guys pulling on my leash and stopping me from catching waves, growling in my face, basically saying to me, you're a girl, you don't deserve to be out here Mm. and go back down to the southern end of the beach where you belong and Mm. just making it really hard, giving Mm. me a really bad time. And and there was times when I had the courage and the fortitude to sit up and go, no, I deserve to be out here as much as you do. Mm. And I would earn their respect through that. But then there was times when I didn't have the courage and the fortitude and I'd put my tail between my legs and have tears in my eyes and Mm. paddle home. And those days were really hard. Mm. But there was always... Surfing's not a sport that you can go home and practice behind closed doors before going into a big stadium and then proving yourself. Exactly. Like you need to be in that surf in order exactly. to be able to train. So I went back out every day. <laughs> <laughs> and just when they thought they got rid of Gidget, here she is again. <laughs> I'm back. You got, you got beef with me? Let's have it out. <laughs> I also learned the value of having male allies. So mm. if one guy was giving me a hard time, I had made friends with another guy who I asked for him, his reinforcement, his support, his backup. Can you? Can I just let you know that this guy over here is giving me a hard time? Is, mm. Do you mind having a word with him? Or, or this is how I'm feeling. Um, you know, I feel like I'm being threatened or intimidated. You know? mm. And so, yeah, finding my male allies in the water has taught me to find my male allies on land as well. Yeah, I learned early on that you surround yourself with experts, you save yourself a lot of time. Sure. And growing up in Manly, I had the distinct advantage Mm -hmm. of being surrounded by world champion surfers. Mm -hmm. So, and world champion athletes. Yep. I Was there someone you... Yeah. Guy Leach was a mentor. Stuart Entwistle, Barton Lynch, Pam Burridge, Wendy Botha. Cool. Yeah. Tom (laughs) Carroll. You know, yeah. Just I... And Wendy Botha says, (laughs) I was such a pain in the ass. (laughs) She says... All you would, all I would do is just ask her questions. 
just constantly. Yeah. How do you do it? Why do you do it this way? How do we? And she's like, shut up, leave me alone. <laughs> oh, I love and it. then she introduced me to Rob Roland Smith, who became my personal trainer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a profound mentor, father figure. Mm. Yeah, he was amazing. And um, so, yeah, I, I found my mentors based on surrounding myself with experts and surrounding myself with people who had not only achieved what I wanted to achieve, but had achieved it in a way that I respected mm-hmm. and in a way wanted to emulate. Well, actually, I never wanted to emulate anybody. Mm. I actually wanted to just be the best of mm. the best. So that meant not following anyone else's rules and doing it my way and and becoming the most successful surfer in history, mm. which is to win six consecutive world titles. Yeah. Ambition. Yeah. <laughs> Here it is. You wanted to be world champion mm. at surfing. You wanted to be able to travel the world and compete. But how on earth did you sponsor, uh, support yourself oh, during that time? Working 60 hours a week in four different jobs. <laughs> <laughs> what jobs? I was. So when I left school, my dream was to... Did you have a backup plan? No. Right. Well, that's <laughs> it. Kidding me. <laughs> Who has a backup like... plan? <laughs> you know what my backup plan was? My HSC. <laughs> Is that right? Go back. I'll become a mature age 300 studio. out of 500. Yeah, that's going to be a solid backup plan. <laughs> not, a, not good enough to get into university, but who wanted to go to university? Not me. <laughs> not no lame. desire for that either. So what my, jobs? I was working as a barmaid at the Old Manly Boat Shed. Yes. I classic. was working at... Kay Snapper in as a waitress. Mm-hmm. I was making and delivering pizzas at Beaches Pizzeria in Manly. Mm-hmm. I was working as a uh, rollerblade instructor out of um, Aloha Manly and also working at the surf shop at um, Australian Surfer HQ, which was owned by Doug Lees and Guy Leach at the time. Yeah. What else was I doing? I know that's more than four jobs, but yes, I was literally doing a variety of jobs, but my four main professions were Old Manly Boat Shed, pizza delivery or pizza making because I didn't have my license at the time so I had to <laughs> get my license so I could deliver them, uh, working in the surf shop and teaching people to rollerblade. You do say that you made mistakes on tour and you alluded to that at the start. Yep. What mistakes? Oh, my goodness. Which ones? How many do you want? <laughs> Hit me. Okay. Number one, I projected my fierce expectations of myself onto those around me. So I was really hard on myself and I was really hard on everyone. So number mm. two, I lacked compassion and empathy. So what, how that played out is if I was injured, for example, I saw it as a challenge to overcome, not something to listen to. Mm. So the more harder I worked, the more my body broke, mm. the more I wanted to work to rectify mm-hmm. the break. Number three is I was really brash and hurtful mm. and I meant it in a way that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> But it was, yeah, it was very, it was very hurtful. Mm. Uh, and it was never my intention. Number four. <laughs> I'm not counting. Oh, yeah. I am. <laughs> um, what were some of my other mistakes? Uh, I did, I went, God, I went to the extreme lengths to conform and fit in to what I thought a beach babe body is supposed to look like. Mm. And now I'm, I'm a shorter, stockier person mm. and I'm strong and so I didn't think that that was the correct body to have mm. and everyone had like the keyhole look through their, you know, their legs and mm. I thought, well, I need that because mm. I can't seem to get a sponsor because I'm not the look or the feel or whatever the mm. industry is looking for. So I went to the extreme lengths of getting liposuction on my inner thighs, which was just the dumbest thing mm. ever 
Because I hadn't really finished growing. I was only 24. 24. And you'd won how many world titles? None. <laughs> that was two years. Before you won a world two title. Two years before I won a world title. Yeah, right. Because we, we often hear about the pressures mm. of the surf industry on women. Yeah. But I hear Lane Beachley goes to an extreme length of having liposuction. Yeah. And that just is an extreme barometer of how awful that pressure must have been. Yeah. If and how you're confident, desperate. you're amazing, <laughs> you're Lane Beachley. <laughs> um, but if you felt that pressure and so much so that you'd have liposuction. Mm. Did anyone suggest it to you or did you? No, I just came up with the idea myself. You wouldn't have had much on your legs to be able to Well, there was enough. There was enough. And it was at a time where I had just come off the pill. See, I didn't have Mm. an ounce of body fat until I was about 19. And then I went on the pill and my body Mm. just went, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I went, what is this? How do I get rid of it? And I'd convinced myself that I was doing all the right things when I knew I wasn't. You know, Mm. I I wasn't dieting properly and I had no idea around nutrition. Mm. And I was, I thought that. Well, I had this old school mentality, which unfortunately I think a lot of people still have, is that exercise and diet's the only way to lose weight. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, what about the uh, negative dialogue that you have where you're beating yourself up and calling yourself fat and ugly and stupid mm. all the time? Yeah. Don't you think that contributes to yeah. how you feel about yourself? Then yeah. that contributes to the actions that you take? So, yeah, I What you aware. see when you look in the mirror? Yeah, exactly. And what you tell yourself you see mm. when you look in the mirror. When I reflect on that period, I, I was convinced that, you know, someone like Lisa Anderson was the, the benchmark. Mm. And unless I looked as beautiful as that and as, you know, as good as that, then I was never going to be worthy of sponsorship. Mm. And that was the way that I was treated. And I was always said, because I was sponsored by Roxy when Lisa mm-hmm. was winning, and they basically said, look, you're number two. You'll always be number two. Mm. And until you do what Lisa's done, we're never going to see mm. you as number one. And so I got sick of living in Lisa's shadow. Mm. And so that's when I went to Billabong when they just started women's mm-hmm. wear and became their cover girl. Mm. But I just, I'd never had the cover girl looks, right? So I just never thought that I was going to be any, of any value mm. in, that, in that world. And it took me a long time to embrace that. But I really do believe I've been bookended by the two most beautiful girls in women's surfing, and that's Lisa and Steph. Mm. And I'm like, I call myself the little black sheep in the middle who who had a different way of viewing life and decided that women surfing, I wanted to see it go off in a different direction. And I knew that my power and my strength and my courage and my fortitude and my vision was the value that I was Mm. bringing. It wasn't just about my looks. No. It actually had nothing to do with Mm. my looks. It was more about my words and my actions, that that's what I wanted to be remembered for. That's what Mm. I wanted to be known for. In retrospect, it's probably... Uh, it was a blessing that I, mm. you know, that I wasn't, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm ugly, but I'm certainly not the, the golden pinup girl that most surfing industry companies are looking for. Depends who's looking. True. But I find, I'll put it to you, you talk about all those mistakes that you made on tour, um, you know, and you, you do say that you were brash and you were really focused, fierce. Um, Compassion of a tiger shark was one of the quotes in, in, um, in the media but I put it to you, Lane, that given that context, mm. it wasn't a 2020 context, given that environment, that time, and we talk about the pressures of that surf industry, mm. is that what you needed to be in order to do what you did? And even though you look back and say, okay, well, I was like this and I, you know, um, those mistakes and I own those mistakes and I wish I didn't, but did you need to be that person in order to achieve what you have achieved? 
At the time, I believed I needed to be that person to achieve what I achieved. And now? And now I believe I don't need to be that person to achieve. I also believe that when I resort back to being that style of person, I've gone back into my survival mode. And when I'm in survival mode, I'm in a state of fear, Mm. which means I'm pushing and pulling and striving and failing to thrive. When did you realise that that's what you were doing? When did you realise that I was being the compassionateless tiger shark. The compassion of a tiger shark <laughs> and that you don't need to be. After when winning my it? sixth world title. Yeah. Yeah. What was the trigger for you to realise? Um, one of my dear friends, Jodie, um, sat me down and said, why do you think you're so driven? Why are you so fierce? Is it because you're adopted? And I went, whoa, wow. Mm. That just shot straight through to my heart. Yeah, I'll mm. own that. Yeah. That's what's driving me. Fear. Fear, fear and more fear. So I won seven world titles, six of them consecutively, five in a state of fear, two in a state of love. What brought you that state of love? Fear. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) How low did you have to go to your order? Well. I mean, change doesn't just happen overnight. No, it doesn't. So when I won my first world title in a state of love, what brought me to that realisation was doing a rebirthing, which, (laughs) yeah. No, I don't dive back into the womb and come back out again. A rebirthing is a breathing, it's a cyclical breathing exercise that you do that I do them all the time now Mm -hmm. because they they process and transfer stuck emotions and and, um, mostly uh, physical Mm -hmm. pain. Um, The body physically stores emotion and it turns it into pain to distract you from dealing with the emotional Mm foundation of Mm. what's going on. When I did this rebirthing, and this was recommended to me by someone, that's when I became aware of my, not only my fear of rejection, but how that fear was determining and driving my behaviours. And it was just like, it was a true awakening. Mm. I just went, oh, wow. So that explains why I'm behaving the way I'm behaving. Mm. Six months later, I fell in love with Ken Bradshaw. Mm-hmm. And then we went on to win five world titles mm-hmm. together. But I won my first one just so freely and effortlessly because I stopped Who's focusing. Who's another surfer, professional surfer. Yeah, I didn't explain who Ken Bradshaw yeah. was. <laughs> Think of Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. It's exactly who it is. Passion <laughs> of a target shark? No, but he looks a lot like Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's a big wave uh, Texan mm-hmm. who uh, moved to Hawaii in 72, which is the year I was born. Right. <laughs> so he's 20 years older than me. Yeah. Remember I talked about did, liking all the guys? That's okay. And, um, and, yeah, he's an avid big wave surfer. He was one of the pioneers of big wave surfing mm. on the north shore of Oahu and introduced me to toe-in surfing and we became like the dominant features out at Sunset Beach for mm. many years. So. Yeah. So when I fell in love with the process, I fell in love with the opportunity, I stopped focusing on the outcome. Mm. That was the first realisation. That was the first awakening. Mm. Then after I won my first world title, I was like, oh, oh shit, now I have to defend my mm. world title or now I have to be twice as good as what I was last year to earn the right to do it again. It wasn't good enough just being a champion. No, so I placed all this unrealistic expectation on my shoulders Mm. and did that for the next five years. One, despite that, Mm. at all costs, with a broken body, broken neck, broken back, broken knees, Mm. uh, you name it, fractured shoulders, fractured coccyx, fractured ribs. Yeah. (laughs) I smashed myself. I had two... Knee injuries. So, in so I won them in 2003, 2004, and half of 2005, I competed with these bung knees. Mm. And then I went to do a photo shoot and I put my board down and something snapped between my shoulder blades. It was like someone was wedging a hot, blunt butter knife between my shoulder blades and slowly twisting it. It was paralyzing. Mm. And so I went to the chiropractor and he adjusted my neck, which aggravated it. Mm. 
And then I went and got an MRI and it showed that I had 80% of my spinal cord severed by a herniated disc, that an injury that I incurred in 2001 that I chose not to do anything about. So my left arm had literally been on fire Mm. or numb for five years. Mm. I was like, nah. Ah, forget about that. Yeah. I go, well, Donald's to win. I yeah, must win. Focus. Screw that. Screw yeah. that. And then my body went, time out. Yeah. Talk to me. So I laid down and um, I laid down the board. Took six months out and invested in everything I could possibly do to heal my body, mm. not with the intention to come back and compete, mm. but with the intention to come back and surf without pain mm. for the first time in five and a half years. You know, you've talked about before and you alluded to depression, suicide, thoughts. How low did it get for you? And That's about as low as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Suicidal for thoughts. Me. I'm glad I can laugh about it. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty depressing. Uh, and that was from chronic fatigue syndrome the second time. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't learn from the first time. The second time was really debilitating because it just snuck up on me. Mm. And the one, like, the lesson, the most valuable lesson I learned when I reflect on that period is the body whispers before it screams. Mm. And we really need to start tuning into those whispers. Mm. But I didn't. And there were so many whispers that turned into extremely loud screams that I still ignored. Mm. And then that's where I ended up in this really dark, depressive, distressing state. And thinking of different ways to kill myself was disconcerting. What so stage was that? That was in 1990. Six, so two years before my first world title. Right. And, yeah, it was pretty scary. But fortunately I've never gone back into that depression, the depths of that depression, mm. but I'm still susceptible to depression. Mm. So a couple of years ago I, I found myself depressed again and uh, the, way that the, the only way I can explain how I feel is numb. Mm. And because I'm a lover of life and a gregarious character, I know when I don't want to be seen, I don't want to speak to anyone, I don't mm. want to be spoken to, I don't want to be recognised. Um, I want to hide away, I want to isolate, I want to ostracise. Um, I'm not even, my eyeliner is always down, I'm never looking up, I'm mm. fearful of even looking in my own reflection in the mirror. These are indications that I'm in a numb state. Yeah. I don't numb with sedatives or stimulants. I yeah. numb my emotions. Mm. And so I numb myself by, by shying away from mm. the world. And, um, and then that's how I ended up becoming an ambassador for our UAK Day is yeah. because I'm familiar with the signals. I'm yeah. familiar with what happens and I'm familiar with how scary and dark and, and, and alone mm. you can feel. So I was very fortunate that Kirk, my husband, uh, saw it as well Mm. and he had the courage to ask me, are you okay? Mm. And I had the courage to go, no, I'm not. Yeah, well, that's it. What (laughs) happens after you ask that question? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And after that, it's like, all right, well, then let's talk. Yeah. Talk about it. It's like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Are you still that fierce competitor? Do you have to switch? Do you have to work to switch it off? Do you? No, I've learned, I'd learned... In 2006, so the year I won my seventh world title, I staged the richest surfing event in the world, which I staged for seven years. Mm. And I learned through running that event, being the only surfer in history to have a license from the ASP to stage a world championship tour event, to double the prize money and to have an event that was never sponsored by a surfing industry, Mm. um, one of the cartels. (laughs) Um, I learned to find my on-off switch. I could go from standing on the VIP stage and talking to sponsors and making sure everything's running okay to then walking onto the beach and turning on mm. and being in a competitive mindset. Mm. So I know my on-off my on switch. Mm. I know what state I need to be in to get the best out of myself. Mm. I'm aware of when I've slipped back into survival mode or sabotage mm. mode 
and I know when I'm in flow and when I'm having fun, my body is a great indicator of when I'm in or out of flow. Mm. And so it's having the courage to literally look in your own reflection in the mirror and look in your own eyes Mm. and ask yourself, how am I feeling today? Because it all comes back down to how we want to feel. Yeah, right. When Steph Gilmore won her seventh world title and equaled your run, was there a competitor in you that, you know, that tiger shark that went, I wish I got eight. <laughs> well, the is thing, there like the, you, I know because you mentored Steph yeah. for a really long time, and she looks up to you as a mentor. And she wouldn't be; she says she wouldn't be where she is if not for the legacy of you. But was there that tiger shark still there? That competitor? There's been a couple of reflection points where Steph's achieved monumental success, and gosh, she deserves it. She's one of the most raw extraordinarily talented surfers, Mm. athletes, human beings. She's just an amazing woman and she's my favourite surfer. (laughs) So I'm I'm honoured to have a student as successful as her. Mm. Um, There was an element of me that went, oh, like relevance deprivation set in. Mm. Um, I had relevance deprivation when she won her fifth one, when she won her sixth one. And when she won her seventh one, I was claiming I'd just won my eighths because I just won the Masters World title Mm. and it was considered to be a world title. So I'm like, well, I'm staying a step ahead. I'm still a step ahead. But then the WSL went, actually, sorry, it's not an eighths. It's just a a Masters World title. Yeah. So I went, oh, so now I'm just equal. (laughs) (laughs) That's that competitor. That's that competitor. Yeah, it still resides within. You can't switch off. Mm. that competitor. So I, I'm not dominated by it anymore though. I'm not, mm. I'm not conflicted by it mm. anymore. It's like I recognise it, go, oh, yeah, that's a competitor. What, you haven't done enough, Lane? Yeah. Like if I'm having yeah. a self-pity party, I do walk into my trophy room and have a look around <laughs> and go, okay, <laughs> you got something to complain about? You've done amazing You might want to chill out yeah. and go for a surf. <laughs> Get on with it. <laughs> but it is hard to switch that. It yeah, is, it's, it's been difficult. Who you are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean it's ingrained in my DNA, that competitive spirit. Mm. So to switch that off takes a little bit of conscious effort. Mm. But to see Steph, I mean, as I've always said, Steph never had any, never had a goal to match me. She always had a goal to smash me. (laughs) 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 Then that's just a matter of time before she does. Yeah. You know, when she won her... And you'll be okay with that? Totally. Yeah. I was competing. Okay. 2006, I won my seventh. 2007, she's on tour full time. Mm Mm-hmm. And I invited her actually to come and compete at my event as a wild card mm-hmm. at the Beachley Classic, the Javiana's Beachley Classic at Manly. You also invited Sally Fitzgibbons as a wild card and Tyler Wright. So yep. their first WSL events, Tyler when she was 14. 14. Yeah. So I hand her 20 grand and send her back to high school. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I invite Steph to uh, compete in my event in 2006 and she beat me in the final. Then I invite Sally. She wasn't able to beat me in the first time she competed, but she got me the next time. Invite Tyler the following year, she beat me, and then Sally beat me in the last the mm. last time I competed there. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, um, in 2007 I was standing on the deck at the, at the Snapper Rocks at the Roxy Pro mm. and, um, and Steph was, you know, she's so good at seeking advice and counsel and, mm. and um, at the same time she was, uh, she was saying to me, look, I want to go and win 10 world titles. And I looked at her and I went, Good for you. <laughs> you remind me a lot of myself. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly's got 11. 
go to Kelly, 12. Yeah, go. Smash it. <laughs> Come on. Take out Kelly. Because that's what I pride myself on doing, winning six in a row when he couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I beat King Kelly. Uh, and that was a motivation for that. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And Kelly was one of my inspirations to win six. I even sat down with him during that year and asked him how to maintain the motivation and deal with the pressure and expectation of having mm. to come back and win and compete and do it all again and again and again. Mm. And his advice was get okay with losing. Mm. I looked at him and went, are you out of your mind? Mm. I've got a trophy room to fill. I don't want to get a loser. I'm not a loser. <laughs> but then I grasped the concept and went, oh, that makes sense. Because when you stop far- focusing your attention on worrying about losing, then you focus your attention on what you need to do to win. Mm. You detach from the fear and you focus on the fun. Mm. Let's talk about the women's tour because there was a huge chasm between women surfing and men surfing. Mm. Women, a uh, long time it was almost like, oh, it's a lay day. I'll oh, we'll put the women's yeah. surfing on that send day. Send the chicks so out. Send the chicks out. <laughs> it's turned to crud. Let's send the girls out. Yeah. <laughs> and that was what it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Like girls would turn up and there's no change rooms, no nothing for them. No. Um, oh, gosh. I remember when the WSL took over the tour and set up that monstrosity of a stadium at Snapper Rocks for the first time. And I walked into it and went, there's change rooms and they have lockers with their names on them, like yeah. somewhere to store their boards. And you can get changed in and out of a bikini without being watched by the by everybody on the beach. Like yeah. I don't have to get changed in the car park. Do you have to what do the deck change under the this? towel? What yeah. Is this? Yeah. This and is that amazing. was always like yeah. yeah. And there's a viewing platform. <laughs> I don't have to sit on the beach in the sun and burn up before my heat. This is incredible. <laughs> it's obviously better now, yeah. but is there still a chasm? And how do we I think there's a, still a chasm of attitude. It's still this draconian, sexist, chauvinistic attitude of the men who have been there for so long. There's mm. so many salty sea dogs in executive and leadership positions within mm. the industry that are holding women back. Mm. Women prosper when they're presented with opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm a believer in meritocracies. I'm not a believer in quotas. However, if it takes a quota for a man to step back and give the woman an opportunity to realise her value and her worth and, and to realise the value that she brings, then I'm all for it. Mm. The, the surfing world, it's a challenging one because they're so stuck in their ways mm. and it's, only, it's, it's a matter of time. Like I honestly never thought we'd see pay equity in my mm. lifetime. So yeah. that gave me hope. Yeah. <laughs> that inspired me to believe that equal. change is on the horizon yeah. and the, the surfers themselves have to keep fighting for it. And unfortunately, I... And we have I, to keep educating the surf. I've had a lot of conversations with people in the surf industry I'll have you. about equal pay, yeah. which, you know, of, you know, trying to educate people because they've been so conditioned on, mm. you know, that equity imbalance there's still not that kind of understanding of why it is that we have pay equity, which is for a female. For us, we're like, how can you not understand? But there's a certain amount of Yeah, help me understand. Yeah. (laughs) Why why is a female's Mm. win worth less than a a male's? Yeah, and that's an old school mentality. One thing I want to be conscious of is not man bashing too because as many men as there are keeping us stuck, there's plenty who are elevating us and supporting us and nurturing us. And also women. There's women in leadership positions who are also responsible for keeping women back, holding Mm. women back, and they need to get out of their way. And I I learned this from actually working or mentoring a little bit with Sally and Steph is Mm. that the way that I saw the world or the way that I viewed the world is very different to the way they viewed the world. And I Mm. see this in, in corporations as well. Female leaders have had to fight and struggle and strain and they've made it. So therefore, the women mm. who come up from underneath them need to fight, struggle, yeah. and strain as well. Yeah, and it that's doesn't not have, progress. No, that's not progress. Yeah, it doesn't need to be that way. Yeah, 
you did eventually meet your biological mum. In between your world titles, you found it. Uh, so I, mum, I met mum right before I won my second world title. Mm. So 1999, yeah, it's the first time I met her. She came into your life? Yep, she yeah. found me. Did you ever want to know who Yeah, who I did. Was? I, I, was, I searched for her in, gosh, three years prior to that. Right. And I got my birth certificate and I was like, oh. 17-year-old Scottish woman living in Surrey Hills. Thank God she gave me up. (laughs) Not much surf in Surrey Hills. Not much at all. Yeah, and and if it didn't work out in Surrey Hills, I might have moved back to Scotland and it's freezing in the water over there. So, you know, I felt like that was a blessing. Yeah. And then she came into my life in, uh, yeah, it was right before my second world title and and we had a tumultuous love affair. You know, I I never felt comfortable calling her mum. Mm. took me a long time to break down that fear mm. and that barrier of calling her mum because mm. I lost Valerie when I was six. I also lost Christina, my stepmum, mm. when I was 30. So yeah. I had equated motherhood with loss and yeah. I wasn't ready to lose another one. So the, safe, the safest thing for me to do was actually protect myself yeah. and prevent myself from from moving into that, to opening up my heart and loving another mother mm. with the prospect of losing another mother, mm. which ultimately is it what happened. Happen. But at least I learned to love her before she died at 62 years of age with ovarian cancer. So mm. I was very fortunate that I was able to at least create that connection. And the only way that I can reconcile the sadness when it envelops me is that I had that conversation with her before she died mm. and we forgave each other and we recognised each other and we told each other we loved each other and then it was it and it was done. She mm. fell asleep and never woke up again. So, yeah, there's plenty of times I look back and go, God, there's so many things I really wanted to ask her or learn or know mm. and I just go, well, it's done. Mm. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> so then I reconcile it with that conversation and go, but okay. But you did have a good. Well, I have five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. That's all it takes. Because she's in America? Yeah, she lives in, well, she lived in Spokane, Washington. Mm. And you flew back? I did. Yeah, she called me and said, I've got three weeks to live. Can you come see me? So I went, better jump on a plane tomorrow. Oh, so I did. Are. I jumped on a plane the following day. Mm. And, yeah, she, she, God, walking into the hotel, in the hospice, she was so fragile mm. and frail. I was like, well, just not the vision of the woman that I once knew. And, yeah. And, it's like, yeah, they're the kind of things that you can never unsee. Mm. So I saw it and went, oh, gosh, okay, this isn't good. And now I've, I've got a 25-year-old half-sister mm. who lives in America and she – I went over there to clear out mum's house, which was quite a cathartic experience yeah. the following year after because after mum died, she was married to this guy called Richard mm-hmm. who was a cantankerous old sheriff and he, uh, unfortunately, mum was HIV positive and mum had infected mm. him. Mm. And so he saw that as a death wish even though he wasn't um, that mm. sick, and then went out onto the lawn, the front lawn, six months after mum had passed away and shot himself in the head. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I had wow. to go over there, <laughs> clean up the house. My sister, she's, you know, she's very mature. She's very independent. She's very pragmatic. So we were able to clean up the house, and then I made sure all her financial affairs were in order because mum proudly wrote me out of her will right, right. before she died. Right. <laughs> Yeah, mum did a good job of rejecting me more than once. Wow, yeah. And um, and so now I've maintained a really strong connection with my sister. You do? Yeah. 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 Did you say she's 25? 25. That's yeah. young, isn't it? Yeah, she's so a baby. Yeah. 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 One thing I like about you, Lane. Mm-hmm. Um, Just one thing? I like so much, Lane. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you're so honest and... And I love how you talk about this because I'm, as you know, um, a mum of a preemie, a 32-week, 1.3 kilo wow. preemie who's a little 
fighter. Oh, she's a little fighter. You were a premie and mm. you call yourself a fighter and yeah. you you talk about that being, you know, the oh. first kind of instilled that strength in you that you took on in your career. Yeah, I, I attribute my fighting spirit to being a premie baby because I came out way too early, six weeks. Yeah, I was thrown mm. into a humidity crib and I lived in there for six weeks and I had to learn how to fight for my life. Mm. I had to fight to breathe and, mm. yeah, I was a crusty little thing. Yeah. <laughs> so... I seriously believe that's where I have my my fighting spirit has emanated from. Is um, that makes me so emotional Aww. every time because I've heard you say it every time we do something you say that and mm. it just always like you know what saddens me, me is, is I, I it saddens me that people who have premature babies fear the worst mm. and then are reassured of the worst by mm. people who don't have premature babies. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. You must have encountered that. Yeah. Yep. Oh, you're going to have problems now. Oh, you got your work cut out for you now. Yep. Oh, he's going to, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Screw that. Mm. Like, I conquered the world as a premature baby. <laughs> so don't tell me that just because I came out six weeks early that I'm going to be a problem child. Yeah. I, yes, I was a problem child, but for way many different reasons than being a premature baby. Yeah. So, yeah, premature babies can conquer the world. Yeah. But I want to talk because obviously you've, you've had a big impact, I, and I alluded to that, not just in the surf, but in your roles off it. I won't go through all the board positions and everything that you've, you've had. Aim for the Stars was an incredible foundation. For how many years did that run? Fifteen. 15 years, which really changed the sporting landscape. And actually not just sporting, wasn't it? No. You all across, yeah. you, like scientists, um, medical. Acrobats. Geniuses. <laughs> Lawyers. But environmental scientists. Yeah. Marine biologists. Amazing. Uh, glass blowers. Basically uh, giving women the kind of equipment they need to be able to succeed in their industry. Yes. So I just wanted to elevate women. I, you know, I looked back on my career and went, you know what? There was such a major disparity between the level of support I received and there were so many times I wanted to quit all because of $3,000. And I and I wanted to provide that meaningful support and reassurance to young girls and women that they can achieve their dreams. They just Mm. need to have the courage to ask for help. And Mm. one night after the work at the Old Manly Boat Shed, I was working from six at night till three in the morning. One of my employers said, I believe in you. Here's three grand. Here's your next round the world air ticket. And I was like, oh, you're a lifesaver. I don't have wow. to sleep in my board bag next week. This is amazing. Wow. And so after winning five world titles, that's when I started the foundation. So it started in March 2003. Mm-hmm. And after 15 years, it just got to a point where I decided it had achieved more than I expected it to. Mm. And I was done. I didn't have that same level of passion for it. Mm. You know? And and it was getting hard. I mean, and the landscape changed, The right? landscape changed in dramatically. In terms of like a lot of women were giving, being other avenues to be able to have that support as well. The landscape yeah. was changing. Irrespective of that though, that, mm. you know, I, I knew Aim for the Stars filled a very significant chasm that women in unique demographics and unique pursuits yeah. weren't able to generate that level of support. Mm-hmm. So music, science, culture, business, arts, academia, uh, 15 years, 500 women, a million dollars in scholarships, plus, you know, um, equipment grants. It was, yeah, it was a pretty phenomenal run. Mm. And we achieved DGR status. It was the last thing Wayne Swan was able to achieve when he was in office with Julia. Yeah. He rang me at four o'clock and said, your bill got through. You've yeah. got DGR status. Yeah, which is huge <laughs> Thank for you, foundations. Wayne. Yeah. And charities. Yeah. Yes. So it felt 
right mm. to say I'm done. Yeah. And uh, and it's been a blessing and, and I've got 500 kids now. That I, yeah. <laughs> or 500 Tri- 500 tribe members yeah. who have just gone on to achieve monumental success mm. and happiness. Some of them have just faded away. Some of them didn't achieve their dreams, mm-hmm. but that happens. It happens, yep. you know, but ultimately, um, yeah, I've met so many inspiring, remarkable young women mm. who just have this pure passion to change the world. Mm. And that was so rewarding and satisfying to be a part of. Awake Academy. Awake Academy is, is my new, new passion. Mm. Yes. So... This was another brainchild born out of reflection. I had to stop and take stock of my life and go, the way I'm living my life doesn't seem very sustainable. Mm. (laughs) I'm exhausted doing 45 to 65 talks a year around the world and I was just getting burnt out. Mm. So I thought, why can't I create something that people, because I literally vomit on my audience in (laughs) In the most beautiful way. Drop the mic and go, okay, deal with that. I'm out. (laughs) See ya. Here's a course now called On Your Truth that enables people to go deeper Mm. into some of the stuff that I talk about Mm. when I'm on stage. It's an opportunity for people to wake up, own their shit and (laughs) and trust in love. And Awake Academy is the the platform that houses these courses. Mm. So the purpose of the academy is to cultivate growth connection and happiness in humanity. Mm. I want to help people wake up, detach from fear and design a life they love because I lived by default mm. and it was punishingly hard. Mm. And I know it doesn't have to be that way. So you ask me, do, do you do you know that or do you believe that that's who you had to be to win? Mm. It's who I believed I had to be at the time. Mm. And now upon reflection, I know it's not who I had to be. Mm. It's who I chose to be. Mm. And I believed it because I believed in that success had to be a struggle. Mm. It had to be hard to be worth it. Mm. And if it wasn't, then I didn't deserve it. Mm. Now, mm. after winning my seventh world title in a state of love, grace and gratitude, I'm like, whoa, it can be fun. What? Mm. It can be easy? No, come on. I don't trust mm. that. And then you'll probably say, well, don't you believe or don't you think that you only learnt that because it was hard? Mm. It's like, well, no, I won my first one in that mentality. Mm. So I then chose to subscribe to an illusion made it nothing but pain, suffering, struggle, and I'm still in body pain maintenance because mm. of. So the Awake Academy is to shortcut the struggle. Yeah. So it's a three-chapter um, course called Own Your Truth, and the first chapter is about awareness, awareness of your feelings, awareness of your stories, your judgments and your triggers. Mm-hmm. The second chapter is alignment, alignment with your truth, mm. who you are, starting with your I am mantra, learning how to meditate, Designing, I've designed this thing called Own Your Truth Model, which mm. is um, helping you identify your strengths, your loves, your roles, your stories, mm. and then um, solidified in a mantra. And then you align yourself with your dream team. Mm. So I talked about having allies in your mm. dream team. The, you know, the law of the proximity states we become the sum of the top five people we spend the most amount of time with. Mm. And I found that, especially coming through surfing, I had dream thieves and I had dream team members. So yeah. my dream team members were my honesty barometers and my dream thieves were the guys that sucked the life out of me. Mm. So who do you want to be and then who do you want to be surrounded by? Yeah. And then the third chapter is awakening, awakening your spirit, celebrating success, celebrating failure, mm. playing more, winning the morning, mm. um, and then introduce people to my seven doctors, so things that can awaken your spirit and help you live an abundant and fulfilled life. I love it. I love it. I'm so excited, (laughs) Mike, can you tell? And we finish off every podcast by asking, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self? Um, It doesn't have to be hard. It can be fun and keep it fun. Keep playing. Mm. Keep playing with life and 
recognise that when it starts getting serious and it starts getting hard, you're sabotaging it. Mm. Lane, thank you so much for sharing your story with me on On Her Game. I loved it. Thanks, Sam. It's always good to have a chat with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Darcy Thompson, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. (laughs) 